So our, our next speaker will be Owen Flanagan. He's a professor of philosophy, uh, James B. Duke, professor of philosophy and neurobiology at Duke University, uh, and to me a great mentor and friend. And it's my pleasure to introduce Owen. Thank you, Russ. Um, maybe we could begin now uh, uh, thanking our uh, Russ Powell and uh, Steve Clark for a wonderful conference and. Uh, uh, Russell uh, and uh, no uh, Rachel also, who's we've talked a lot to over the course of the year. So just uh, thank you very much on behalf of all of us here. Uh, really so I don't. Uh, I I work neither in philosophy of religion uh, uh, nor uh, on uh, really political philosophy. My interests are, are primarily in philosophy of mind, and I think I'm a quester. I'm an atheist quester. Because last, <laughs> my last book is called uh, uh, The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in the Material World. Uh, so I guess that makes me a, a, an atheist quester. But I'm very interested and have been for a long time in comparative philosophy uh, for a host of reasons that I won't go into. So what I'm going to talk to you about a little bit today is uh, what I think will help us uh, thinking through some of these problems by thinking about um, a, a perhaps a more representative sampling of the great world's uh, wisdom traditions, possibly spiritual traditions. Uh, someone told me recently that on, um, so I'm going to talk to you about, uh, say some things about Buddhism and about Confucianism, both of which I have been working on for about the last 10 years. Someone told me recently that on, um, on dating sites, at least in the US, um, the best answer for uh, well-educated people like us on the religion question is spiritual but not religious. <laughs> now, I think that's interesting, and I think that carves out a space that uh, uh, some of us, uh, some people are interested uh, in carving out, and possibly uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism and Confucianism uh, fit, uh, fit that description, perhaps from the point of view that we have in the uh, West. So the topic for today, now, first I'm just going to put some cards on the table. Uh, my own view, if you ask me what my religion is, I say none. Uh, but I do have a normative view, and I call it Platonic Hedonism. Uh, and uh, I won't defend it today, but it's roughly this idea, that the best place to live your life is at the intersection of where what's good, what's beautiful, and what's true uh, intersect. So spend as much time that you can in, so that's just Platonic in the sense that these aren't capitalized any longer. They're not forms of the good, the true, and the beautiful. They're just beautiful things, they're truthful things, and they're good things. And it'd be best to negotiate one's life uh, where they intersect. Uh, the problem, though, as I see it, is that most of the familiar world religions involve massive disrespect of the truth. Uh, that is, they relish in uh, uh, falsehoods. Now, I know that there's a distinction, in fact, I make it myself, between what I call assertive theism and uh, uh, something uh, called um, expressive theism. So expressive theism would be where there's not really beliefs involved. You just get up and you uh, do rituals and you dance and you sing and, you, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but what I have in mind by the, the falsehood problem is assertive theisms, theisms that involve I believe in and then other propositions, where the propositions I would claim are usually uh, quite preposterous epistemically, they just don't pass any sort of uh, uh, muster. Um, so this seems to me to be a problem in that we all uh, uh, let religion uh, get through uh, way too easily on this. And so one question that I'm going to ask today, I'm not going to argue for what I just said, um, um, uh, there are many people in the room who have argued for that, actually. Um, and, um, but um, the first day, the question came up, given giving religion a break on the epistemic question, then there was a discussion of the good things that religion does, allegedly. So it uh, supports social solidarity and that sort of thing. Uh, brings about certain in-group um, goods that we all uh, like. 
And several, several people in the audience asked, are there any traditions that are not religious that could do the same thing? And some people in the audience answered, well, we're just early in this game. You know, maybe some will turn up. Some secular institutions could, that can serve the same functions. I don't think we're early in this game at all. And I think there are traditions which are antecedent to the traditions we're most familiar with in the West that actually have and still continue to um, do some of these things while being, if not irreligious, at least religious in very different ways than we're used to in the Abrahamic traditions. So the question is, are there any historical examples of spiritual traditions, I could put spiritual in quotes, that are not disrespectful of the truth uh, and that do the good work? And the answer is maybe, and I'll talk about two of these right now. So what I'm going to do today is look to some varieties of Confucianism and Buddhism. I'll actually be looking at primarily at the ancient historical examples, which come roughly from, in Confucius's case, 600 BCE, and Confucius in Buddhism's case, 500 BCE. Okay, and then you get Plato and Aristotle a little after that. So it's, you know, some people say, "Wow, this is the axial age where interesting things happen all over the world," but I'm not going to comment on that. Um, uh, but these are obviously way before we get, not before Judaism, but certainly before we get um, uh, uh, Christianity or Islam uh, emerging as uh, formal traditions. Um, so I'm looking at them um, uh, to see um, if there's a critique of the commonplace that religion and only religion can provide a foundation for morality. Now that'd be my focus, because uh, you know, if you're an atheist, you know that when you're sometimes asked to speak, and you always have to answer these two questions. Why should I trust you? Um, why, uh, why, what reason is there for an atheist to be moral? This is Dostoevsky asked this question in the Great Inquisitor section. He has his brother, um, uh, one of the brothers wonders, if there is no God, then everything is allowed. If there is no God, then everything is allowed. Um, so that's a commonplace. The other thing that you're always asked is, say something upbeat about the meaning of life if you're an atheist. <laughs> upbeat and truthful. Upbeat and truthful. I claim it's easy to do, actually, but you just have to get rid of certain antecedent shackles of, uh, uh, of traditions. Um, and so we're looking for the prospects of a rational or truthful, uh, more or less, tradition. There's a lot of focus pocus in these uh, traditions I'm about to talk about. Uh, what I call, what Rawls called comprehensive traditions. Traditions which actually can give you a way of living uh, meaningfully uh, and shape a, a whole life uh, without giving up too much to the truth. And they're also pretty resilient and long-lived and that, again, engender in-group solidarity Given if that's a good thing, and outgroup tolerance. That would be nice, because we talked about it on the first day, and there's these problems, right? Okay, so here, here's a, a classic text, um, and it's called The Buddhist Attitude to Other Religions. It was given in 1966 in what was then Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Uh, but I think this is worth, almost everybody in Buddhist studies will say this is true. The Buddhist attitude, do I have a light on this, do you think? Oh, yeah. The Buddhist attitude to other religions has, from its very inception, been one of critical tolerance. But what is significant is that it was able to combine a missionary zeal, that's important, with its tolerant outlook. Not a drop of blood has been shed throughout the ages in the propagation and dissemination of Buddhism in the many lands to which it spread, and religious wars either between the schools of Buddhism or against <coughs> other religions have been unheard of. Very rare instances of the persecution of heretical op opinions are not lacking, but they have been exceptional and atypical. Buddhism has always shown a remarkable degree of adaptability in the course of its historical expansion. Okay, so this is just an interesting sort of fact that most historians would accept. This is not to say that there hasn't been violence in Buddhist countries and so on and so forth. We'll get to the question about uh, the relationship of Buddhism to a sort of political theory. This is a, a complicated um, issue. 
But I think this is the general attitude of people. Now again, there are schisms, for example. There's a famous schism uh, that interested me philosophically in the first century BC, uh, first century AD, as the Pali Canon was starting to be written. That's the Buddhist Bible. It's about 12 times the size of the Old and New Testament. Okay, Just so you get the picture um, how big uh, and complicated it is. Uh, at the time that that was being put together, there was a, a debate about whether or not uh, ejaculatory dreams in men or orgasmic dreams in women were sinful. And there were two sects that split up over that. Okay, so there was a, actually, it was a very interesting, well, well St. Augustine discusses the same question. He says, I, I promise not to fornicate, but I keep having thoughts of fornication, am I guilty or not? These are like questions about voluntary action and sex. I mean, so all religions are too preoccupied with that problem. But the point is, these, this is enough to have a schism, but they didn't kill each other over it. Okay? <laughs> so I think that's, uh, that's important. Okay. Uh, now, Buddhism, uh, though, this is one reason maybe it's attractive. I'm not going to defend either of these traditions. Um, one of the reasons Buddhism might be attractive to some people in the West is that it's officially atheistic, um, so I, um, uh, uh, but it's opulently polytheistic, as I'll say. There's lots of ghosts and spirits all over the place. There are heaven and hell realms. But the reason Buddhism, so Buddhism is atheistic by our standards, which is interesting. So if there is a God module, if there's God genes or whatever, it's interesting that a tradition that has 500 million, one in 12 people on earth is not Buddhist. And they don't seem to activate this. They all, last year at this time, I spent a month in Thailand. Uh, you ask people in Thailand, uh, do you believe in God? They say, you mean your God, a creator God? I say, of course not. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. Why would anybody believe that? But then you ask them, do you believe in rebirth? They say, of course. Okay, so there's, I'm not suggesting this is a, a rational tradition. I'm just saying they don't get our commitment to creator God. What are the arguments against creator God? One is uh, the same insight that Bertrand Russell had when he saw that the cosmological argument for the existence of God is incoherent, it's inconsistent. Um, uh, Buddhists have. That is the idea, you know, familiarly, I'm not going to spend time on this. First cause arguments go like this. Uh, everything that happens is caused to happen by something else. Um, those things were caused to happen by something else. But that process can't go back infinitely far. Therefore, there's God who started the cosmic ball rolling himself, prime mover himself unmoved. Okay? And the response to that is, of course, well, you're accepting a regress, an infinite regress in the form of God. Okay, so it's the same problem. You've, you've denied that there could be an infinite regress, and then you accept that there could be an infinite regress. It's just a more common infinite regress. It's a personal God. Uh, and Buddhists see right through that. They see that the, problem, the argument is inconsistent. And there are also um, uh, arguments of a moral sort. So Buddhists think that if, uh, if God created everything, then God would be responsible for all the bad stuff in the world. Uh, but there is, we are responsible for a lot of the bad stuff that happens there for those of God. Uh, and then there's this Indic version, what I call the Indic version of the problem of evil. If there existed a powerful enough being to create the world, he would have done better. Okay? He wouldn't have created a world with such misery and suffering. Uh, therefore, there wasn't. Some Indian traditions, by the way, uh, Hindu, what we now call Hindu, that's an invention of the British Empire, you probably know that. Uh, there is no such thing as Hinduism. But um, the Indian traditions out of which Buddhism arose, um, along with Jainism, and so on and so forth. Uh, there was a view that there's a creator God, sometimes, but he was usually like the wicked, stupid, step, 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 son of some really good God. Because again, the idea was that no really terrific God with a lot of power could have created this thing that we have in front of us. But anyway, this is the usual, if you go philosophical within Buddhism, these are the reasons Buddhists uh, don't allow for a creator God, uh, but they do have, as I say, lots of other kinds of gods. So the question comes up in Buddhism, why be moral? 
Uh, and you might say, again, this is the, we could call it, I'll call it the Dostoevsky problem from here on out. Um, you know, uh, if there is no God, then why not be a sensible knave? Why not assume that I'm in a uh, complicated uh, set of you know, economic games where it's always in my interest if there's not a big payoff that way? Um, so the logic usually uh, that we see, now there are a lot of different arguments in a tradition like Buddhism for why you should be moral. One argument goes like this. There's abundant suffering in the world. That's what's called the first noble truth. Um, uh, there's a lot of suffering all over the place. Uh, we were worth overcoming suffering if we could. We can't overcome natural suffering, uh, that is, tsunamis uh, and so on and so forth, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes. Uh, but we can overcome whatever um, suffering is caused by our nature. Uh, and it can be overcome. And some of the ways it can be overcome by seeing reality as it really is. Now, one of the three poisons in Buddhism, this is one attraction for me, given what I said about truth, is that the poisons in our nature, according to Buddhists, are egoism, avarice, anger and resentment, fury that the world won't cooperate and be the way I want it to be, and false belief. Moha is the Pali word. False belief, delusion. It's usually translated as delusion. That's your enemy. If you if you if you believe falsely, you'll get yourself into trouble because you believe that things could turn out in ways that they can't turn out. Now, so if we see things in accordance with reality, then we can overcome suffering insofar as it's possible. And this involves these three three things that are supposed to go together: wisdom, virtue, and mindfulness. And these are what I call this is if you think in Aristotelian terms, you might say this is the Buddhist. What would eudaimonia or flourishing be for a Buddhist? It would be living in a wise, mindful, and virtuous way. Now, what does that involve? Well, <clears throat> um, here, here is the wisdom you need to have. Now, notice, this doesn't have anything to do with God, and this is really important. There are either three or four metaphysical beliefs that across all Buddhist traditions, uh, and by the way, there is no Buddhism, there's only Buddhisms, but across all Buddhist traditions, these three or four beliefs are considered essential to understanding reality as it is, and none of them involve what we would think of as religious commitments. The first one is the doctrine of impermanence. Everything is impermanent. If you like to latch these things on to Western people, you could say, Buddhists are Heracliteans or Whiteheadians. Everything's a process. Even things are events and processes. Everything's just unfolding. And I, myself, am one of the impermanent things. So I am an unfolding inside the larger unfolding. Uh, my personhood is, uh, I guess around here, you could say it's parfidian. Okay? I'm a series of unfolding self stages who have psychological continuity and connectedness, and when it's over, it's over. Once I wasn't, uh, and I came into being, thanks to this third thing, dependent origination, everything connected to everything else. There's no discussion in Buddhist metaphysics of free will. Nothing. The Pali Canon, search and search and search, no such thing. Okay, there is responsibility, but there's no free will. Metaphysics is very different, and I think in many ways more plausible than uh, some of the metaphysics that we have. Uh, emptiness is just the view that, I, uh, I don't actually need to go into emptiness. Uh, one way to put it is that if you think that impermanence means that uh, is a diachronic thesis, that persons and personhood, like everything else, don't last forever. You know, they say diamonds are forever. Well, diamonds aren't quite forever. They were once coal and they came into being, and then someday the diamonds won't be either. <coughs> Things are just more or less permanent. Emptiness is the idea that if you take things synchronically and try to reduce them to their essences, you'll find out, contrary to say the Greek atomists, that they don't bottom out in atoms, that the atoms are bottom out in further things and possibly out infinitum, 
possible. Okay, Those, we don't need to take a strong view on this. But these are metaphysical theses, and obviously they, they pertain in the first instance to the way the world is, the way the cosmos is. They don't mention anything about divine beings or deities or anything else. If you grasp these truths, these metaphysical truths, it's supposed to make it easier. It's supposed to make it easier to be an ethical person. Remember, my topic right now is what's the reason to be moral? This is, you know, this, this is where I'm focusing on today. Buddhist answer is if you see things truthfully, you'll see that there's reason for you to be moral because it will help you suffer less. And insofar as you are like other people, you might want them to suffer less too. And the way to suffer less is to practice these virtues. So there's conventional virtues. These are just your standard list. Don't kill, be modest. Uh, uh, well, this is different from our tradition. You're not allowed to work for any company that produces weapons of any sort, any sort. So you couldn't work for universities because all the funding for universities, at least in my country, goes through the Defense Department. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and then there are a couple other ones you can cross off the list, like there's no intoxicants, things like that. But those are optional, let's hope. Um, but, then, but then everybody, every Buddhist could take the, the avow to, because he sees the world correctly, to try to overcome suffering. And so compassion is the virtue where a good Buddhist person seeks to overcome suffering of all sentient beings. And you might wonder, where did the sentient beings come in? Well, we could talk about that. But it's all sentient beings, okay? It's animals as well as non-human animals as well as humans. Loving kindness is the virtue of wanting to bring happiness in its stead. If, if, uh, if you have a headache and I give you aspirin, I've ended your suffering. Have I made you happy yet? No. Right? That takes more. That, that's how those two virtues differ. Sympathetic joy. This is a very interesting virtue. And again, you might say, well, it goes counter to our nature, but who cares? Sympathetic joy um, is feeling happy for a person who beat you in a zero-sum game. Andy Murray being happy that Nadal beat him yesterday. I heard on the news this morning that he smashed his racket. <laughs> Sorry, see, these are bad, but, but imagine he said, when he got on the press conference, he said, I'm so happy, the doll plays so great, we brought out the best in each other and he beat me fair and square. That's not a very common attitude, but that is what uh, mudita or sympathetic joy would be. And equanimity is not just a in the head mental state for Buddhists, it usually means <coughs> serenity in community, where there's a kind of a equanimity that comes from other people sparing well. It's not a private mental state. But anyway, these are, these are uh, everybody, every Buddhist person, you don't have to go to a monastery or talk to a nun or a monk. You just can decide you want to go on the bodhisattva's path. A bodhisattva is a well-developed, enlightened Buddhist person. And these are the virtues you should have. You shouldn't have them because Jesus said so. You shouldn't uh, have them because they're written down in some book. You should just have them because they're <coughs> the best way to overcome suffering in yourself and other people. So some people just say it's a purely psychological therapeutic theory. And sometimes Buddha acts that way. In one of his very first sutras um, in the Pali Canon, um, the Buddha is asked those questions, the quest questions. He's asked, um, why is there something rather than nothing? You go on after you die. When does time begin and when does space end? And he basically says to his disciples, shut up. I'm telling you something more important than the answers to those questions. So some people say historically Buddhism is anti-metaphysical. I don't believe that, but you could go that route, just say it's a purely therapeutic theory. Because other times, Buddha and his followers take lots of, uh, have lots of opinions. OK, 
Okay, the first complexity, so, you know, just keeping our eye on, is Buddhism the type of theory that can solve the problems in a secular way? Well, there's some problems with that. The first complexity is, even though, as I said, it's atheistic, or if you take that last interpretation, quietistic in the sense that it says, just don't go there. Let's not do that God discussion. Okay? Um, even though it's quietistic there with God, creator God or gods, it's obviously polytheistic when it comes to ghost spirits and heaven and hell realms. Now, there's a caveat here, though. I think the early Buddhisms that you still see in Sri Lanka and Thailand and uh, Burma, formerly Burma, are not so opulently polytheistic. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is very familiar in the West now, um, is very um, opulently polytheistic. And one reason, this is just a thought I have, uh, Buddhism is, in the sort of Piagetian sense, immensely assimilative and accommodative. Partly because it isn't so doctrinal, because you can show up in Oxford and say, I don't care what you believe in, you can become one of us. And in fact, you'll see people say um, in Japan, if you say, what religion are the Japanese, people will say, they're 70% Confucian, 70% Buddhist, and 70% Taoist. <laughs> see, so this is an interesting, some of these traditions are very accommodative. It doesn't matter what else you are, you can be one of us. Um, that, that's an interesting, important element here. But the fact is that there's a huge amount of, of toleration of local um, traditions. But in a, in a certain odd way, I think that if you go back 2,500 years ago in Buddhism, you see it's more austere and Protestant, you might say. And as it becomes more and more recent, especially among Tibetans, it becomes more and more um, opulently um, filled with spirits and ghosts and things like that. Um, uh, the second complexity, of course, is, now this brings us back to one of the functions, allegedly, that some people say religion serves. And we talked about um, salvific traditions. Uh, and I mentioned in Thailand, even educated people like us in Thailand, I did this last summer nonstop, I'd wait for the right moment, and then I'd say to really intelligent people at dinner, I'd say, so you gave money to the, that temple today for merit. What's that for? They say, for a better rebirth. I say, excuse me, do you really actually believe that there's a re rebirth in store? And the answer is yes. Okay, so this is a very common folk belief among intelligent people. So I, you know, it just amazes me. Um, and it has to do with this uh, belief in karma. Now, there are tame and untamed views of karma. Sometimes their views of karma are just like our views of karma. Namely, bad people pay. Good deeds usually result in good outcomes, bad deeds result in bad outcomes. That's what I call tame karma, okay? It's a very, very common view, and even tame karma can extend to courts of law and political processes and the way family members uh, constrain each other's behavior by giving feedback and payback, rewards and punishments. But the untamed view of karma is this idea that the universe, now we do this, we, I shouldn't say we, um, uh, one way we do this in the Abrahamic traditions is have a god who both created and then does this other work. He rewards and punishes uh, based on the moral quality of your life afterwards. So even if you get away being a sensible native through this life on Judgment Day, remember as John Locke says, he says, well, in uh, his chapters on personal identity, he says, well, you know, uh, even if you forget the bad things that you did. On Judgment Day, God has to restore your memory perfectly because that otherwise he'd be cruel if he rewarded or punished you for things you didn't remember. Okay, so on Judgment Day, but but on the Buddhist view, it's just interesting. The universe just does this. It's like a law of nature. It's like the law of universal gravitation or force equals mass times acceleration. 
There's just a system of rebirths. How many rebirths? A standard thing that my Tibetan friends will say is, well, imagine a mountain range as high as the Himalayas, and then multiply it by 84,000, so 84,000 times bigger than the Himalayas. Then imagine you take a soft piece of Tibetan cloth and you touch it once a day. How long will it take for that to erode? That's how many rebirths you have in store. But you might say, well, that helps you live in the moment because you can't fuss too much about like when is when do I get out. Um, on the other hand, uh, so this is a this is what I, this is a peculiarity, and no rational person should believe in this. Uh, it seems to me, uh, based on the evidence, but it's out there, um, and it's part of this tradition. Uh, oh yeah, I had in my some people ask me what a soteriology is. Soteriology is just the word that I guess theologians use for a theory of salvation. So different traditions have theories of salvation. I guess it's related to what in the Abrahamic traditions people would call something related to eschatology, which I think literally means the, the theory of the final days, but is a theory of hope. What happens after I die? Okay. So in, in, in Buddhism, now this was their antecedent, this was before Buddhists came along. In fact, some people will treat Buddhism as heterodox relation to Indic traditions. But Buddhism is very similar to other Indic. From our perspective, when you go in and look at it, it's kind of like trying to understand like, what are these Anglicans and Catholics fussing about? I mean, or what do, how do Lutherans differ from Calvinists, differ from this? You know, if you're looking, you, we understand from the inside why there are all these religious agreement, disagreements. But there's a lot of commonalities between Buddhism and these other traditions, although there's dissimilarities too. But in terms of the ethics, there's great similarities. In any case, the idea of nirvana, um, one sees uh, across Indian traditions. And uh, one idea of nirvana, which you do see sometimes in um, places like um, Thailand, I'm sorry, in uh, places like Sri Lanka, is just that it's one life and you're out. And that that's a good result, because that's what I call here Nirvana One. Uh, at those, those things inside you, the, the inevitable things that come with human nature, the thirst and avarice, the poison of anger and delusion and resentment, uh, and um, uh, false belief, once you die, that's gone. It's a little bit like the, when Socrates is asked in the Phaedo, I guess, what do you think is going to happen after you die? He said, well, one option is you get to go, you're just gone. It's like delta sleep. You're just done. And the Epicureans would say, where death is, I am not. Death and I never be. <laughs> it's okay. It's just, it's just one of those things. And Socrates says that the other view is, though, I go to a place where all the other famous people are, and I get to talk to Homer and Odysseus, and it's a dinner party that lasts forever. He doesn't explore any third or fourth possibility, but, you know. So one idea that the, some Buddhists have is a one life and, you're, life and you're out, and at that point, your desires are extinguished. The second one that's increasingly common among Tibetans, increasingly I mean by from the 8th century till now, is, um, I'm sorry, not among Tibetans. This is the one uh, uh, that the Buddha, I think he was about 30 when he <coughs> achieved enlightenment. He saw those that wisdom that I listed. Okay? Buddha saw the wisdom, and he became a good Buddhist person. And that's another kind of extinction. He no longer is driven by his egoism and his avarice and so on. And then the third kind is uh, when you actually are extinguished again as in N1, but only after N2. This is like what happens to bodhisattvas and Buddhas. So all forms of Buddhism eventually lead to a complete dissolution of personality. So if, again, evolutionary psychologists want to say that um, religious theories are guided by, among other things, either tendencies towards belief in personal deities, or tendencies towards wanting to go on forever, 
Buddhism is a, um, in all its versions, is a uh, counterexample because Buddhist, Buddhism always involves extinction. This is one reason Robert Paul Bois has a wonderful book called uh, the, the Reception of Buddhism in 19th Century Europe. And it's all about how much Hegel and Nietzsche love Buddhism and they thought it was completely nihilistic and isn't that cool. <laughs> um, anyway, the fourth complexity, uh, I've been going around saying this and then people say, oh really? This is like Buddhist. And, I, and, they, and then they can't come up with counterexamples. There's never been a successful Buddhist state. I put Buddhist in italics. I mean a state that has incorporated Buddhist principles at the level of the state. So if you look around, familiar with the world right now, Bhutan, which is, people always rave about, they say, oh, Bhutan, it's so many Buddhists, they all love each other, the king says, the king, notice, the king says, we don't worry about GNP, we worry about GHP, the greatest happiness, something. We measure happiness. Well, look at Amnesty International, they're a top five racist state. Um, uh, they um, uh, uh, bring in Nepalese workers and then put them in internment camps. Myanmar is a Soviet-style um, um, communist state right now. Thailand has a king and is falling apart. Um, it doesn't have, the thing is, Buddhism doesn't have, um, it isn't the kind of philosophy that yields a political philosophy, it seems to me. Okay? This is just correlational uh, to that feudal, uh, feudal disaster place. I mean, it's sort of, here you have, Tibet, by the way, was always trying to conquer the rest of China. Um, uh, and, um, the Bong people were very warlike, that was a, um, uh, historically. But you have a, here's a country which tries to govern itself by reincarnations. This is not a democratically stable form of anything. Uh, but still, here's an interesting fact. According to Wikipedia yesterday, uh, <laughs> there are 500 million of these people. I think that would come out to 1 in 12. 1 in 12 people on Earth would say that they are Buddhists. And that's fourth after. Now this should make you suspicious, of course, because all, none of these things are unified. These are all superordinate. Uh, it'd be like saying, how many vehicles are there? You know, I don't know. Um, there's, there's many, many varieties. We all know this of all these things. Um, but notice it's fourth after those three. So that's interesting. That's a lot of, a lot of Buddhists. And if, so therefore, so far, if it's true that they tolerate each other and don't get into religious wars, that's interesting. They don't have personal gods, that's interesting. They have a strong ethical tradition. That's interesting. Uh, and uh, what else is interesting? I don't know. You decide for yourself. All right, quickly. Um, I have, what, 10 minutes? Five minutes? Um, you've four. got about <coughs> four. Twelve? Yeah, you have about 12 minutes. Oh, okay, okay. So now I'll switch, because this is, after all, just my attempt to tell you some things that I happen to know that might be relevant to what we're talking about here. Okay, so on the first day, we saw a map um, of... Uh, the you know, tr world traditions, and we're, I forget whose map, whose map was that? We saw a map that had about, um, yeah, uh, yeah, and it was, what was it called, tell me? Uh, it's uh, a, a map of whether societies have moralizing gods or not. Yeah, uh, whether God, uh, societies have moralizing gods, and uh, in, uh, in Dominic's very interesting talk, and uh, I think what's interesting is Confucianism, to me, even more than Buddhism, is the possibility proof that there's something that a, a long successful set of traditions which don't seem to have moralizing gods. So now I'll just make a case for that very quickly. Uh, this very different situation, oh by the way, there's a wonderful book by um, a philosopher and art historian named McGilvery called The Shape of the Ancient World. And he argues actually that Buddhism came in contact with the Greco-Roman Egyptian world, probably in 1800 to 2000 BCE. In fact, 
Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages. They're very easy to learn if you know Latin. I was pleased to find that out 10 years ago when I started to start learning them. Um, but um, his, his argument, and he says you can see this, if you look at paintings of Indian, you'll see paintings of Indian elephants in Egypt from 2,000 years ago. There was then a Dark Ages, again until the emergence of modern Greece, Plato and Aristotle, okay? And then Alexander's armies trained up by Aristotle get over to India again. Okay. It looks as if the Chinese situation is an isolated experiment, but they were neither visited by Indians to speak of, nor visited by Europeans. That's important. Okay. So again, we ask the questions: What is morality, and why be it? Okay. And here are uh, here's the an quick answer to uh, what is morality for Confucian. It's what the virtues that a, a gentleman has. Now, when I say a gentle person, that's a junsa. And there are these four or five virtues. These are the mandatory virtues. One, of, one piece of my work that I'm very interested in is looking around at different ethical traditions to see which mandatory virtues turn up on the list and what, how they overlap as they do. Because my view is that ethics are part of human ecology. They're responses to um, ecological problems that we face. Uh, but what you see is, not surprisingly, something that we would call benevolence, possibly it could be called compassion. Uh, and there are debates in classical Chinese philosophy about how wide this extends. So is this a family virtue that extends outward? Or in Moza, is it universal? Should it be for everyone? There's debates about that. And some of the debates have to do with effectiveness. Is it better to be focused on your local group and then have to expand out? Or be on everyone? Filial piety or elder respect. Um, uh, this is important, and there's a lot of ancestor worship, and people usually think that ancestor worship goes with believing that your ancestors have passed on to some heaven. It's not clear at all to me that that's the case. It's just that your ancestors, you, have, you should have gratitude towards your elders because they gave you life, and they gave you wisdom. And you are part of a lineage of humanity that goes back and respecting how you came into the world and the conditions of knowledge that you then there is um, respect for customs, rituals, mores, and proper manners. Some of these are rituals in Harvey Whitehouse's sense. These would be public rituals. But a lot of them have to do with proper manners, how you greet a person, uh, whether uh, Confucius laments in the Analects that the kids nowadays, they no longer know how to bow at the bottom of the stairs. They come all the way to the top of the stairs before they bow. You know, it's Ciceronian, Tempera Amoris. Here we go again, the youth, they can't really get it. Um, but this is very, very important. So matters of dress, ritual, and so on. Then there's honesty, justice, and righteousness, and discernment, which would be like Aristotelian phrenesis. This is being able to figure out what the situation calls for. Okay? And these are things that can be cultivated in a human being, and these are required for negotiating the world successfully. Um, let me see if I want to say anything about this. Oh, one thing I would notice is, if you look back at the Buddhist list, you'll see that there's nothing that corresponds to justice on the Buddhist list of mandatory virtues. That's one of the problems, I think, with political um, philosophy. Uh, they want compassion to do too much work, and it's not uh, equipped to do that. Um, and, uh, okay, so then you say, well, all right, but all right, you told me what a moral person is, but why be one? Right? That's the old question. Okay, I, now I understand what morality is. It's like book one and two of Plato's Republic. Okay, I know what it is, but why should I do it? Prasimicus says, right? Why, why should I do it? Isn't it in my self-interest? And here are the answers that you see in the tradition. It's productive of social order. This is a huge problem in Chinese philosophy. It's the Warring States period. There's 16 or so Chinese nations fighting against each other. 
and everybody's worried about order. That's the reason to have, one of the reasons to have a, a moral theory. Furthermore, there's always talk about how the sage kings behaved. There was a golden age allegedly, a lot of traditions do this, and kings, the king Shun and Zhou, I think their names were, uh, they were gentlemen. So again, they, they had things going well, society then was at peace, we should behave like them. It's the best form of self-cultivation for humans. This is interesting, it's very Aristotelian. Uh, it's like humans have an ergon, a proper function, and it it's works if our second nature is developed from a first nature of a certain sort. Uh, and then, here's this, it is endorsed by heaven, or heaven's mandate, which is Tian or Tianming. There is debate about how much classical Chinese philosophers believe in heaven. I'll just say this much. I don't believe they believe in personal gods, although a lot of the hoi polloi, whatever the Chinese word for hoi polloi is, uh, believe in ghosts and spirits. Okay? But you don't see it in any of the Chinese philosophers emphasizing that except one exception, Moza. And he thinks it's important to scare the ordinary people by telling them that there'll be, there'll be trouble. There'll be a ghost and spirit who might get you next to kin. Okay? But usually it's neither thought to be metaphysically warranted to believe in such preposterous things, nor motivationally warranted, warranted. It doesn't lead to good results if people believe in hocus pocus. Um, then there's this idea, one of the other reasons, and again, the Chinese uh, situation has been remarkably um, peaceful, um, uh, at least under Confucian rule, not under possibly communist rule. A common idea that Buddhists have is what I call the moral charisma hypothesis. You see this in uh, Analects 9.14. Confucius is asked, why are you going over there to visit the nine barbarian tribes? And he responds, where there is a jinsa, there are no uncouth people. I say, well, what's he talking about? This is again and again. Confucius says at 18 different points in the Analects, according to my account, that vir virtue is contagious and vice is not. This is a natural psychological law, he thinks. Now, he's wrong about this, obviously. But, um, but he believes it. He says it more often than he says anything else. The second most common thing he says is this. I have never met a man who loves virtue more than sex. So he wasn't naive, okay? <laughs> but he did think that virtue was contagious. If there were enough junsa, it would spread. You didn't need to fill people's mind with mumbo jumbo, hocus pocus, and false beliefs. That's what it's not like this tradition. Um, okay, uh, complexities are now about to end up. Okay, still nonetheless, uh, it, a lot will depend on how you interpret what the Buddhists mean by Tian or Tian Ming, have its mandate. Eventually, though, you see it in Taoism and other Confucianisms as it's kind of like a natural law theory. It's just like, go with whatever produces order. That's a good thing. Go with what seems to be a fulfillment of human nature that's positive. And that's what heaven mandates. Um, uh, is it doing serious work? I don't know. Uh, but there are also ghosts and spirits and afterlives. Okay, so here's the conclusion. What did I say here? Let me see. I have to see it. Um, okay, so uh, I would claim this much for today. Buddhism and Confucianism are possibility proofs of non-standard ways, at least relative to the Abrahamic traditions, of grounding morality. That to me is very important and interesting to push away people who say, uh, boy, you can't do that without a theistic situation. Providing moral motivation. Both theories allege to explain why you should be motivated to be moral without um, in-group solidarity, they definitely work to do that, and types of out-group tolerance. Both, both groups are fairly tolerant towards out-groups, um, much more than we see in some of the data we've heard here. At least that would be my anecdotal reading of the history and of spending time with these people. And that, all that admits zeal to convert others to a favorite form of life. This is important. 
Buddhism is a proselytizing religion. Confucianism, pretty much, when, when Confucius is going to visit the nine barbarians, it is because he's going to do them a favor and we convert those uncouth people. That's a good thing. Okay, so they're both, they both have this deal. Do they also provide possibility proofs that there are, are can be fully naturalistic philosophical come ethical traditions that don't require mass false believing? I say maybe. Hope springs eternal. That's right. Thank you. Brief comment by Dr. Guy Fahane. So I just have three legal comments. Uh, I'm no expert in Buddhist or Confucian, Confucian ethics. Uh, one is about the point you started with on what you describe as a commonplace that morality needs to be found in religion. So I suppose that's more commonplace on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, and I think even within the Western tradition, there's, there's uh, plenty of resources for rejecting that connection, which, you know, if you examine it, it's based on pretty feeble arguments and basic reasons for that we find in Plato already. Uh, and it's also, I think, recognized within the place some of the Abrahamic tradition, the whole idea of natural law tradition, uh, gives you a, a sense of morality being independent of revelation and religion. Uh, so the idea that, you know, they have this Eastern tradition that managed to ground morality on non-theistic uh, foundation is, is interesting, but I think if we want to actually combat that commonplace confusion, I think we should do it directly. Uh, Walter Sintram is not here today, but he has a nice little book, uh, I think called uh, Morality Without God or something like that, which exactly tries to target that confusion. So, uh, I'm sure you'll agree with, with, with that point. Then the idea that there might be something missing from a secular atheist worldview, uh, which maybe you could supplement with adding some comprehensive ethical spiritual tradition. And it's an interesting idea, but also a very puzzling one. Uh, and to be interesting to hear you or others say more about it. Uh, is that supposed to be something we, you know, the people in the room, are supposed to adopt after hearing about these interesting past precedents? Or is it something we should hope that? Uh, mass people will adopt instead of current theist religions, uh, neither of which seems very plausible. Uh, but if you think about it, so this, it could be developed in two ways. One is these are a set of beliefs we could adopt uh, to supplement our atheist worldview. But you know, if we're talking about respect for the truth, then uh, we should just consider each claim one by one instead of accepting this big package of uh, traditional beliefs and sacred texts. Uh, so. Um, not a great expert in Buddhist uh, philosophy, but uh, I've looked at some of these texts, and you know, these are not Bertrand Russell. There's a lot of interesting philosophy, but it's, these are religious texts and, and tradition. Uh, and in the Buddhist case, at least, they, they include, even if you set aside all of this supernatural stuff that uh, maybe is separable, there's lots of other stuff there that, that's very controversial and uh, problematic, whether it's a normative claim, like the claim that ending suffering is the ultimate end uh, and starting point, I think that's controversial and probably false. Causal claims about what would end suffering uh, that are empirically problematic, uh, maybe some of them are true. Uh, metaphysical claim, like the claim about personal identity, 
uh, and the nature of uh, substance and so forth. You know, again, not implausible, but hardly obviously true. So you don't necessarily want to ground your morality on all these kind of big packages of things, and you want to pick stuff that uh, makes sense to you independently. Uh, you might think, I think you hinted at that, maybe it's not about beliefs, it's, you know, we're missing this set of rituals and practices and tradition, that's what secular world we miss, and when you can adopt some of this external stuff, that's what's missing. Uh, the idea of religious or spiritual rituals without belief, I think Anglicans have a long practice of uh, trying to do that, if I understand correctly. Uh, but I just thought uh, in this connection, I mean, it's an interesting idea, I'm not sure how it would work, but in this connection, probably, uh, someone should at least mention uh, uh, the rather embarrassing episode of uh, uh, August Comte's 19th century positivist, uh, what did he call it, uh, religion of humanity, which had its secular churches, prayers, and priests. Uh, I think it worked a bit, uh, attra attracted a few people in Brazil for a while, but it was a terrible disaster, and an embarrassing disaster, and also incredibly authoritarian, authoritarian in structure. So the precedent of developing kind of secular religion or uh, quasi-religion is not very promising. Uh, and then just a final point, uh, just on that slide you had about Buddhism and tolerance, uh, and it also mentioned the adaptability of Buddhism. So I think you know, if we can talk about the record of religious tradition, Buddhism has a very admirable record compared to competitors, but there is a dark side that is at least worth mentioning in this context. It's um, uh, connected with the idea of adaptability, so I think you had Sri Lanka on your list, but I think you may have skipped that, but that's a long-going conflict that is not religious in, in nature, but it is between a Buddhist majority and, and a non-Buddhist minority, and death toll greatly uh, dwarfs uh, the death toll you find, for example, in, in Middle Eastern conflict that we hear quite a lot more about. So, uh, and, and from what I understand, Buddhist priests have not been entirely opposed to that conflict. So, so that's a familiar example. There's also stuff within Buddhist texts that, that is martial and, and problematic. Uh, there's one famous text, I think, central to Tibetan Buddhism, called the uh, Chakra Tantra. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. It has something called the Shambhala myth, which is about this Buddhist warrior king who will come uh, in the future, uh, supposed to be known as Rudra Chakrin, the wrathful will turner or the fury with the will, and he's supposed to smite all the non-Buddhists uh, in some big battle and lead to some golden age. Uh, uh, interestingly, it's actually th th these non-Buddhist barbarians are, are, seem to be Muslims in this text. Uh, uh, and it wouldn't surprise us a lot of Buddhist uh, interpreters try to uh, explain that text as relating to a spiritual or inner uh, struggle. Uh, anyway, so there is this myth. Uh, it seems to have had some historical influence. I, I can't resist mentioning a rather bizarre uh, historical episode. I'm not sure everybody knows about it. Involved the, the white Russian baron, von Ungern Sternberg, also known as the Mad Baron. Uh, you may not know this, but he was... Uh, he declared himself the dictator of Mongolia for several months in 1921. Uh, and he took Buddhism very seriously, and he had a whole army that he called the Order of Military Buddhists. Uh, and they did also unspeakable stuff, which I will not describe, but they also were not very fond of Jews. Uh, there were some in Mongolia apparently back then, and, and not many survived those few, few months. Uh, and he took himself, for example, to be a reincarnation of Genghis Khan. He was all influenced by this Shambhala myth. 
Uh, I just will quote you something I found. Uh, so, and so something about the adaptability of Buddhist ideas. So, interpreting the Buddhist scriptures in his own manner, he believed that in the act of killing the weak, he upgraded their position in the universe, and they would be reborn as greater beings. Uh, and that was taken to justify some of the stuff they did. Uh, as a more serious example, uh, which I don't think you've mentioned, and that's the involvement of Zen Buddhism in uh, imperialist and militaristic Japan all the way to the Second World War, uh, and that was amazing. Intense involvement as a book, well-known book uh, from the 90s called Zen at War, the documents that quite extensively. And, uh, I just finished with two quotes from that that I thought uh, are revealing. Uh, so one is by what was a well-known Zen master called Harada Dayun Sugaku. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Uh, anyway, he wrote that without plunging into the war arena, it's totally impossible to know the Buddha Dharma. Mm -hmm. And one of the military leaders uh, uh, and Zen follower called Sugimoto Guru, uh, and he wrote, the war wars of the empire are the Buddhist practice of great compassion. So. Uh, these are, seem to be adaptable and, and, and ideas that, uh, unsurprisingly, can, can also lead uh, to great intolerance. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't think you'll disagree with any of this point. I think just adding uh, things worth thinking about when we <coughs> see this as a model of non-theistic grounding of morality uh, that is also uh, very tolerant and, and uh, benign. That's it. Just a, a real, uh, just a very uh, quick response. I think you might overestimate the um, what I what I wanted to say today. I actually have no uh, interest in defending either Buddhism or Confucianism as good things to be for us uh, now. Really, it was just the um, it's a it's a conditional if, and you may be right that. If one does believe that morality needs stronger supports than just being a system of hypothetical imperatives or a practical form of life that um, satisfies our natural propensities, and that is something that we've seen in the West a lot of, that, that a religion is a really good way to ground a morality, then my suggestion is these are some other ways to do it. And on each list of complexities, I basically wanted to acknowledge that uh, these are not suited uh, for us. It, it, it's related to, you know, Bernard Williams has this idea of the distinction between real and notional possibilities. Um, it's a real possibility that if there are Kalahari Bushmen, they could come to Oxford. Uh, there's no possibility that an Oxford uh, uh, student could go back and become a Kalahari Bushman because you can't make yourself illiterate again. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't want to recommend that we would become uh, Buddhist or Confucian is trying to sp open up the possibility space of thinking more expansively about what are, what kinds of things are religions, what makes something a spiritual tradition that, that, that is not theistic, is there such a thing? Um, uh, and actually, uh, even on the side of uh, one other, just a real quick thing, um, I don't know if I suggested or if I did, I don't want to say this, I'm not sure that there is anything that I would want to say the secular world is missing in terms of rituals it needs to have, like a Comtean church or anything like that. I wasn't meaning to suggest um, uh, anything along those lines. My ambitions are just much, much simpler in terms of the, um, these issues of grounding of, uh, of, of, of a moral tradition. Thank you.